I became a baseball fan Tuesday night, man. That's what I, and, and for some of you, you're like, that's a shame, Pastor. You waited so long. But uh, that Solaire home run, I've watched it a dozen times since then, and I just, just all of it. I mean, it, we see people swing like that all the time, but to actually make contact. And, and then he just dropped that bat. It was so awesome. And uh, just to add a little Dansby home run in there and a Freddie Freeman home run in there. And, uh, gosh, every one of those guys could run for governor and win the state, couldn't they? And just, um, it's just a, a, a fun, fun uh, week celebrating the Braves. And you know what? Just in unison, you know, when the, when the, when the game was over, everybody was like, the curse has been broken. You know, it was just like finally Atlanta sports. We've won uh, something the Atlanta Braves are world champions. You've celebrated. Some of you were out at midnight buying shirts at Academy up early, first in line uh, for shirts at Dick's the next morning. Uh, parades. My own daughter's in the, at the parade. I didn't even know she was a baseball fan. You know, it was just people doing crazy things they never done before. And, and uh, I, I bet you some guy in this room has you've you've stood in your den or you've stood in your office and you went boom I mean yeah, just it's like you thought you were him just knocking that thing out of the park and uh, some of you need to delete your account uh, a lot of you have said some things about the Braves and Snicker over the years and you're like I gotta get rid of that stuff now all that criticism and it's a new day uh, a lot of kids became Braves fans over the last few days, and it's, it's a fun celebration. And sports gives us uh, kind of a surface illustration of, of a lot of things in life. And what happened in the Braves winning uh, the World Series to me is like just a, it's, it's a little glimpse of a victory that was won that is far more valuable than any sports championship victory. And uh, when Jesus Christ died on the cross and was buried and the enemy thought he was dead, he came back to life on the third day and he overcame death. That is victory. And um, today when we look in Ephesians, we see that because of that victory, we're never the same. We don't talk the same way. Uh, we don't have the same perspective, um, and, and it's just a different kind of life when Jesus becomes your life. Imagine sitting down today at lunch with a Braves fan, and you, you say, what about that championship? And they say, oh, they got lucky. Like, well, yeah, but it's pretty awesome, and, and they say, well, we should have won it in four. And we said, well, yeah, I guess so. Well, Snicker messed that one game up with those decisions. Yeah, but we want, we'll never win it again. He was like, come on, man. He was like, well, have you, remember our base running? Man, our base running's awful, and half the guys won't be there next year anyway, and we'll never win it again. And you're just, you're like, what are you, you're like, dude, stop it. it. We're world champions. We won. And we, and we don't want to hear an attitude or a, a thought or words that reflect on uh, not winning. The Apostle Paul, in our, in our lingo, says, dude, stop it. He, he says, 
listen to me. Stop living like who you were. And start living like who you are. Put on your new self. And take off that old self. Put on your new self. Look at it. He, he starts off, Ephesians 4, we're picking up where we left off last week. And he kind of makes in so many words in his kind of language a, a, a dude stop it kind of comment. And then he begins to draw the profile of our life before Christ. And then he draws the profile of our life in Christ. And he holds those profiles up against one another. And he wants us to see, am I living like who I was or am I living like who I am? Am I wearing mostly my old self or am I wearing my new self? And listen to how he describes it. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. That's his Listen, dude, it's got to be different comment. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord. Some translations there translate the word testify as insist. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, an, an exhortation here. Uh, now, this I say and, and insist on, I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, working through the language here, Gentiles... The Apostle Paul was writing to Gentiles. He was writing to Gentiles of two categories. Gentiles that were dead in Christ would be around them, but he's writing specifically to Gentiles who had come alive in Christ. And who were the Gentiles? Non-Jews. And he's saying that among them, around them, the Gentiles that had not trusted in Christ there was a way that their life is characterized. There's a profile of what it looks like to live a life dead in your sins or separated from God or without Christ. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, now he begins to draw the profile of someone in Christ, of someone who puts on the new self. Verse 25. Now, therefore, having put, on, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. These descriptors of the old self and the new self really come together to form one summary thought. And it's the Apostle Paul saying, live like who you are, not like who you were. Dress like who you are spiritually, not dress like who you were spiritually. And he's talking about the contrast between being dead in our sins and alive in Christ. He is saying the curse has been broken. Jesus Christ's death, his resurrection, he's broken the curse of sin. Remember when we worked through the book of Ephesians that this, this letter is a letter that has three chapters ahead of chapter 4. And he starts off by telling us who we were before Jesus Christ, dead in your sins. And then he takes some time in those first three chapters of Ephesians to tell us who we are in Christ. You may remember one particular phrase there in chapter 3 where he talks about us being dead in our sins. But he says, but God, but God, he broke in, he gave us life, he's made it possible for us to have an abundant life, an eternal life, and it's, but, but God broke through. Jesus did something. So who we were dead in our sins, who we are alive in Christ, he tells us what it cost to move us from one place to the other, and it was the cross. That was the payment for your sin. That's what it cost to bring you back to life. And then chapter 3, he says one more thing. He gives one command. In the first three chapters, he gives one command. He's told us all of this about who we were, who we are, and what it cost to bring us from where we were to where we are. Then he gives one command. Do you remember what it was? It was one word. What was it? Remember. Good job. <laughs> Remember. Remember who you were. Remember who you are. Remember what it cost. And he told us all of that. And he comes back and he says, remember. And now when we come to chapter 4, he says, you remember who you were. Remember that. Now live like who you are. Flesh it out. Put on the new self. Take off the old self. And let's give the... Here's a, just a brief few minutes here in the, in the old life, in the old self, in the old dress. These characteristics that profile the old self. It, and it, he just begins to describe what happens in the life, in the mind of someone who's 
dead in their sins. He says, I say to you, just give these characteristics. I stated, testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Number one, in the futility of their minds. A person who's dead in Christ over time begins to show the futility of their thinking. The word futile is a word that means empty, vain, wasted, desert land. There's nothing there. He says that, that there is this futility in their minds when you're dead in your sin. When you're without Christ, there are, he's literally saying there are, it's, it's empty thinking, empty heads. Bart said in the early 1900s, he, de, he defined this word as aiming with silly methods at a meaningless goal. Aiming with silly methods at a meaningless goal. Goal and the summary of the thinking of a of a life that lives it without Jesus Christ is that there is a it's a it's a life spent on silly methods with a goal that is meaningless. It takes you to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes and all of that, trying to understand the mind. Empty heads, empty minds. Every time I read that verse, this image of riding with my dad to work as a teenager, 30-minute drive in the morning, in the evening, early in the morning, drive. My dad would break into the quietness at the most unexpected times. And it, all of a sudden, he, he would just say, Carlos, what you thinking? I hated that question. And I, and, I, and I always hated it because the reality was is that nine times out of ten, I wasn't thinking anything. It was just empty. I mean, I'm just that simple. They're just driving down the road. Probably if I'm awake, I'm just, I mean, how do I tell my dad? I'm just jumping shadows as we go down the road in my mind. <laughs> just empty thinking. And it doesn't matter too much in a, in a ride like that, but for the ride of your life, if you're, you're thinking according to God's word, is just futile thinking number two darkened understanding verse 18 they are darkened in their understanding have you ever tried to put something together in the dark you ever had a Christmas where you didn't want all the lights on but you had something to put together and you try to put it together you just you need some light and you realize you've done it all wrong because it was dark trying to put it all together and 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 here this um the, the, the picture is, is that that plays out in life where a world tries to understand life and because they don't have the light of God, the light of his understanding, there's a darkness there and things don't work together. We talk about uh, things that happen in the darkness is their understanding is darkened. It's, it's, it's building a life with no vision. Our world spends Billions upon billions of dollars trying to understand life. But when it's done without the light of God and the truth of God, he says it's, it's a darkened understanding. Richard Dawkins, a famous scientist who did not know God, said this in trying to explain the atonement. I get this from Tony Morita's book and a quote from Richard Dawkins where he says, I've described atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, 
sadomasochistic and repel it. We should also dismiss it as barking mad. The Apostle Paul would say, Dr. Dawkins, you're darkened in your understanding. He goes on and he says, you're, the one without Christ is alienated from godly living. He, he says, they, they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Alienated means unfamiliar, no perspective. And when, we, when a person lives without a godly worldview or an understanding of what godly living is, the ways of God, they're separated from that. They're alienated from God. There's an ignorance there. It's not an insult. It's a descriptor of not having the knowledge of godly ways. They're unknown. And why are they unknown? Because in the rejecting of the truth, there's a hardness of the heart that has developed. And then he uses the word calloused. Verse 19, they have become callous. You know that physically that a callus develops when there's the rub back and forth and friction of things rubbing together to the point that a callus develops to where it becomes past pain. And there's no feeling there. And the descriptor that's given to a heart over time that rejects God, it is the old self and the descriptor is calloused, past feeling. Over time, the rejecting of what is right and true creates a lack of feeling. And perhaps as a follower of Jesus, you may have witnessed this and even questioned this. How could a person do that? How could they respond that way? How could they go through that without any feeling? I've thought that at times in reports from the abortion industry and would hear the stories and see the pictures and, and wonder how could a person day in and day out over and over and over again participate in something like that and, and, and not feel that. And God's word would come and say there is a time when a person without God reaches a place they're past feeling, they're callous in their heart. He goes on and says in verse 18, says that Verse 19, they have become callous and had given themselves up to sensuality. This giving themselves up is a surrender. It's a participating in something and going in a certain direction so long that conscience no longer matters. It's just a surrender, a giving over. It's a here you go. I would describe it as a surrendering to unrestraint. There is no longer any check in the spirit. There is no longer any speed bump in the right or wrong. And, and the description here is that there is a giving over to sensuality. Sensuality meaning physical pleasure. They've surrendered to whatever gratifies the flesh. And that's the guide. If it satisfies the flesh, then it's okay. And this can happen in a culture. It can happen in a culture where a culture surrenders to unrestraint. I stand before you today and I began to talk about guys not sleeping with their girlfriends and girlfriends not sleeping with their boyfriends and the sin of that and the wrongness of that and saving yourselves until marriage. In some ways we would hear that and we would think, 
Pastor, you can say that in church, but in the world I live in, we're way beyond that. It's kind of archaic. Why would we say that? Because there's a culture that has given themselves over to sensuality. There is no restraint. As you work through these verses, you see the next phrase, greedy for impurity. It is an insatiable desire for things that that person might not see as impure, but according to God would be viewed as impure. And the, the response to that is just greediness for that. We make it real practical and, and, and it, it is, you, you read through this and you, you basically find the plot line for many reality TV shows. And, and you see it year after year that the way that the audience is attracted is to try to create some tagline that creates some sensation in somebody's mind trying to find a, a, a moment where people still feel something. And, and the Apostle Paul is saying, this is for a believer. In his day, he would, he would say, for, for the Gentile that has come to know Christ, this is the old self. And what are we to do with that? He says, you're to put it off. You're to, make, you're, you're to put it off like, like, like clothes. He, he says, you're to take off these old grave clothes and you're to put on new clothes. Put off your old self. And put something else on. And so I'm describing these profiles for us to have us, we need to ask these questions. Does my life increasingly look like Christ? Or does my life increasingly look like the old self? Let's talk about the new self. The, li the one that's alive in Christ. He, he, he goes, he says, go from putting off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It starts with your thinking. We talk so much about the heart, but this is his call to say in your minds where you think. It, it matters how you think. It matters what you think about. And in your mind, put on the new self. This is a, a decision, a choice for you day by day by day to say in my mind, I'm going to put on my new self. What does it look like? It's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know what he's saying? He's saying the, the brand that we wear in these new spiritual clothes is the brand of God. It's what Jesus looks like. It's what God looks like. It looks like righteousness and holiness. Wednesday night here at the fall festival, the air was getting cold. And so Greg uh, Banks woke up and and he, and he had a, it looked like to me a, a brand new jacket, and I saw it and recognized what kind it was was because of the little square right here. And I, I looked at him and said, man, you're going to be warm tonight. He said, I don't get a chance to wear it many times, and I had to bring it out tonight. And that brown jacket with a little square right there said Carhartt. And, and just seeing that brand, I just knew it's going to be warm tonight. It had a reputation. And he's saying here that what we, who we are in Christ, our new self is created after. There's something that is expected of us. There's a, something we would wear. It's created after the likeness of God. And what do you think life lived for God is going to be like? It's going to be like rightness and holiness. And he said, put that on. Now, look this way. 
maybe, I don't know, you drifted away from, just come back right here for just a moment. If you walk in today, and this is your first Sunday, and you hear me preaching, working through this text, here's going to be the temptation. You're going to say, there it is, just what I knew. Church is all do's and don'ts. That's why, I didn't, that's why I haven't been to the church. All they've got is all these things to do and all these things to don't do. And it's just do this and do this and do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And then everything will be okay. Listen, you can't just walk into Ephesians today and, and make that judgment based on Ephesians chapter 4. Christianity. Living for Christ doesn't start in Ephesians 4. Living for Christ starts in Ephesians 1. We have do's and don'ts in Christianity because we have a done in Christianity. And what's been done is what motivates us to do the do's and not do the don'ts. Jesus Christ paid for our sins and there's not enough do's that I can do and not enough don'ts I can avoid in order to make myself right with God. But because of faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died, was buried and rose, I have a new set of clothes to wear. I have a new life to live. I'm a new birth. I have a new life and what comes with that are new clothes. And he's saying to us, don't be who you were. He even says, and if you know Jesus, then do this. That's, it's right there at verse 21. He says, assuming, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. You start with Jesus and then out of that comes these things that you do. Well, let's look at it. Let's describe it. He says, first of all, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. He said, you, you, you trade, you, you take off what's false and what's not true, and you put on what is true. It, look, here's the practical, this is what he means. He's saying, be people that tell the truth. You don't hedge the truth. You don't fudge on the truth. You don't exaggerate the truth. When you speak and you tell something, you tell the truth. And what you share is the truth. And you're not distributors of things that are false, but you're distributors of things that are true. That's Christianity. That's the fruit of being in Christ. And why do we do that? Why are we people that tell the truth? He says, because we're members one of another. So if you're going to relate to one another, the way you take care of one another is to be honest with one another. If I do business with you, I'm able to do business with you because I believe that you are going to tell me the truth. It's terrible for a Christian businessman to become known as someone who doesn't do business according to the truth. There's a friend of ours in Cleveland, Tennessee named Ronnie who had a son named Tanner. And I remember talking to Ronnie about him parenting his son and some issues they were having with him. And, 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 and I had known some of his lifestyle, and, but there was an event that happened that Ronnie said, I need to talk to you. 
And I went and I sat down with Ronnie and the, and the issue of all the things that I knew about in his son's life, the issue that had broken his heart was his son had lied to him. And he said, Carlos, from day one we've said, whatever you do is what you do, but I'm telling you from, from always, just tell me the truth. Just tell me the truth. Just tell me the truth. What was he saying? He was saying, if we're going to operate as a family and it's going to work, then we've got we've to do it truthfully. And the, and the picture here that, that the Apostle Paul sets from the beginning for Christianity is, is that believers respond to one another, relate to one another by being people that tell the truth. And number tw- next is angry without sin. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Now, he, he doesn't say don't be angry. He says that when you are angry, there's a way to do that without it resulting in sin. And it's a, it's a call to us to manage anger, to manage our passion. There will be things that aggravate us. There will be things that irritate us. There will be things that stir our emotions. But he says that you can have anger without sin. How do you manage anger? He says don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, there's a lot of jokes that we make about that statement. You know, the, the, the story always there that goes there is that, hey, with the husband and wife, make sure you, you don't let the sun go down on your anger. And somebody says, we've, we've been married for 30 years, and we never went to bed angry. We stayed up for a month, but we never went to bed angry. I think what Paul is saying here is not this practical weight the sun's about to set, it is the nature of this verse here that the sun going down means that uh, another day's coming and that time will pass. And what we need to do with anger is confront it fast. That we don't need to let it be something that we nurse over time. And we just keep stuffing and burying and stuffing and burying. We need to, we need to confront it and deal with it. We keep short accounts. And then he says, give no opportunity. Verse 27. Remember, he's describing our new clothes. Put away falsehood. Be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 27. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let me just pause here for just a second. This is huge for us. So many of the things that happen in life don't start out with us intentionally believing or thinking that we're about to commit sin. But what happens in our life too many times is that we create opportunity for the devil. We create space for the enemy to work. And it may be your MO that you like, and I just do life, Pastor, right up to the edge. I'm just right at the edge. And I know it looks real dangerous, and it looks, and, and I, but that's just, when he says give no opportunity for the devil, I think we could say that that doesn't mean living life right next door to sin. We don't pitch our tent towards Sodom. We need to come way back over here and not give opportunity for Satan to work. So, Pastor, there's a lot of fun between here and the edge. Yeah, there's, listen. There's a lot of pain on the other side of that edge. Rick Campbell is a man, he and his wife, 
Deborah, part of our church, and he, dear friend and faithful here, and Rick traveled a lot with his work. Rick died in his early 50s with cancer, and remember this statement he told me. He said, Pastor, he said, I travel all the time by myself. He said, the very first thing I do when I walk into every hotel room is I walk to the television and I unplug it from the wall. I said, why do you do that? He said, I just don't want to give opportunity to the devil. You see, there are practical things that you may not be able to do that wouldn't be wrong for someone else, but you have to set some boundaries for yourself to keep from giving the devil opportunities for sin. Listen close, because I don't want you to misquote me on this. I don't say a lot about it. It's not worth dividing a fellowship over. But I'm telling you, what we, what we are allowing in our life with alcohol in these days is positioning too many people to give opportunity for the devil. You can drink a beer, and I can sit down at the table with you, and I'm not going to walk away angry with you or broken fellowship with you. But I want to say it out loud. It will rise and bite you. Over the 28 years of being a pastor, it would be more than a dozen times that I have sat either on my porch or in my office or at, stood at my front door or been on the phone with a man or a woman that started a meeting like this. We went out and we had a few drinks. I went out and I just had a few drinks. And it's almost like I could say, stop right there and just hit play, and it would lead to the same result over and over and over again. And I just, I, I, I bring it up, and I, I, I hope I feel the tension in the room, but I bring it up to just put a little speed bump in your life to say, if you are going to drink, you examine that, you look at that, and you make 100% sure somehow, some way, that you are not giving opportunity to the devil to wreck your life. Now, giving opportunity to the devil. I feel like we need to lighten the room just a little bit. I don't watch Fixer Upper. I don't. Carlos HGTV, she went, come in here and watch this episode with us. I can't do it. Not going to do it. So what, is, what is it? And she knows what I was. It's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and here's why. And I joke about it and we laugh about it and I'll say this. And I'll, I'll holler back from the kitchen. I said, because it creates envy. And every time I watch an episode, I come away discontented. And I've given opportunity for the devil. Now listen, 
you may can watch Fixer Upper. And tell me about your trip to Waco when you get back, okay? I don't, I, that's fine. Take a Sunday and go, all right? You have my permission. But listen, I'm just, what I'm bringing up a funny example to say that there are practical things in our life that may not be wrong for somebody else. But we look at it and you say, you know what? For me to wear my new clothes and, and not give room for the enemy, I got to make some choices. And you're going to have to make some choices. A lifestyle of honesty, anger without sin, no opportunity for the devil. Here's number four, stop stealing. Stop stealing answers. Stop stealing hours. Stop stealing money. He was riding into a culture that a lot of their economy was built on stealing. We, we, I remember in a community, there was a family, this young girl visited our church and, and we're talking to her one day and the, the, the pastor was, shared this with our, my family and he had asked the girl, what, so what, do your, what do your parents do? She said, spot and steal. Just a little young teenager. So what do they spot and steal? No, no, what's their job? What do they do every day of their life? So spot and steal. What do you mean? What they just go out spotting things and they see something they like, they go back later and steal it. She was like, people, welcome to Mount Hope, Alabama, okay? I know you guys grew up more godly place maybe than I did. But it, it, this the, their mode of operating was just stealing things. I read this week about a guy leaving orientation for his company and the boss passed it over to him and he says, he's going to take you through orientation and the employee heard the orientation leader say, now that he's gone, I want to tell you how you can do two hours of work in an eight-hour day. What is that? It's, it's stealing. And he said, as a believer, listen... As a, as a believer, as a Christian, for your place of employment, you ought to be the best worker they can have. And the one place they would lay it would be because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Here, he, he says, um, instead, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We work hard. We call it doing it a, an honest day's work. We work hard with a goal in mind, not to have more, not to get more, but to be able to have more, to share more, to be able to recognize the needs in other lives. That's the purpose for having things. Can you help meet needs? Now, then he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. He's talking about our speech, and corrupting talk is is, is the same word corrupting that described rotting food. And he's saying use your words in a way that doesn't create rot or destruction in someone's life, but use your words to build up. What's corrupting talk? Corrupting talk is, is a conversation that picks out a name, and, and I don't believe there's anybody in this room named Inez. That was my grandmother's name. I just use her. Let me just say if Inez is... You're talking about Inez, and you say, Inez was nitpicking and a griper, and she complains a lot and, and very much thinks of herself. But a pretty good woman. You've just planted the seed of corrupting talk in someone else's mind. But if I said to you, Inez is a hard, is a hard worker, she finds the good in every situation. She smiles a lot. 
and she thinks a lot about others. What you've done is you've built up. And in our conversations about people and with people, he's saying the clothes we're to wear are, are clothes of words that build and don't corrupt. And he goes on and says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, which means don't practice what doesn't match your position. And then he talks about some things to make a clean sweep of. He says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That put away means to make a clean sweep. Just, just take it out of your life. Take slander out of your life. Take clamor out of your life. Take bitterness, wrath, anger. And what do you replace it with? Kindness. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. Why? Because that's how Christ treated us. That's what we wear. So think today and just think, what profile do you see yourself in? There's some ways that you've picked up some old clothes from the past and they become a part of your life. Let this morning be the morning that you take those things off. Pastor, how? It's hard out here. How How do I live the new self? A college student, it's hard. I'm a retiree. It's hard. My job makes it hard. How do I do it? And somebody says the trouble with life is that it's just so daily. And what, what it means is that every day, yes, Christ died in the past on the cross. And somewhere back there, you went from death to life. But day by day by day by day, you need to do three things. One is remember. Remember where you were and who you are what it costs to get you there. And then number two, redress. Remember, redress. Start your day. Lord, I want to remember what you've done. Preach the gospel to yourself and then redress. Put on those new clothes every day. How many times has a parent had to say, go back upstairs and change your clothes? Go back up there and redress. And the Spirit of God would say, redress. Put on your new self every day. And then number three, represent. Just go out there and represent. Knock it out of the park every day. The curse has been broken. Put on the new self. Wear your new clothes. Jesus Christ has won. Live like who you are, not who you were. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us today? Lord, if living without Christ means being darkened in our understanding. Would you today, by the power of your Spirit, shed light on our understanding? Would you fill our minds with a desire for Christ? Lord, I pray that we would hunger for the brand of Christianity that is righteous and holy. I pray, Lord, that that would not, uh, that you would, you would keep us in that. Help us to stay away from pride in that. Let us walk in humility, kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, without bitterness or anger or wrath. Dress us new, Lord. Remind us day by day by day that we have new clothes to wear. In Jesus' name, amen.